Thank you, guys. I said in the first service I uh, could probably never get tired of hearing that, and it's true. Got to hear it again, and I love hearing the doxology like that. Thank you guys so much, and welcome to worship this morning. My name's Eric Barton, and I get to pastor down here at the downtown campus of Bethel, and we're delighted that you're here. This marks a significant central Sunday in the life and sort of the rhythm of the church through space and time. All over the world for 2,000 years-ish, the church has been gathering on what we call Palm Sunday. It's a point on our church calendar where we get the opportunity to be reminded to commemorate, contemplate, celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus. We've been studying here at Bethel for many, many, many months through a couple different books of the Bible, so I need to sort of orient you and bring you to speed where we are. Last fall, we started walking through the book of Joshua, Yeshua, God is our salvation, and it was a demonstration in historical Old Testament narrative of the expansion of God's realm into the geospatial land of Canaan, where God's realm begins to expand literally and physically. We walked through that for two whole semesters, seeing that everything that occurs in the book of Joshua is preparing us for and pointing us to the coming of Christ, Jesus, the ultimate Yeshua, God is our salvation. But for the last five weeks, we've been looking at a New Testament epistle written by the apostle Paul to a young church in Macedonia called Thessalonica. Paul writes this little epistle to them, looking back to what Christ has done, why he come what he's like, all the things that he accomplished. And so now for this week, beginning today on Palm Sunday, and all the way through Easter Sunday morning, Lord willing, next Sunday, we'll spend three services together. This morning's Palm Sunday, I would invite you to plan on being with us on Friday, 6 o'clock, in this free room for our Good Friday service. We call that a Tenebrae service. And also, of course, on Easter Sunday morning. So we're going to look essentially at a tale of three men. That's how we're going to walk through uh, this Holy Week together. I don't know if you have this habit or this uh, pastime personally or as a family or as a household or, or whatever, but I, in our family, every now and then, we like to watch documentaries. The documentaries have always kind of been a thing. It's just they've got increasingly uh, better produced, well-financed, increasingly popular when I was a kid growing up, we would just turn on National Geographic and see a documentary. I'm not sure I was supposed to be watching that stuff. Really wasn't sure that it was okay. But back then, it's all we pretty much had. Documentaries have gotten a lot more sophisticated, a lot more produced. And they've even got their own categories and all the award ceremonies and this, that, and the other. But documentaries, and specifically documentarians, are very gifted at drawing you in with a story. It's never exactly unbiased, but it draws us in because it seems as though since they're real people, not usually actor portrayals, that we can identify with them, we can associate with them. And whatever documentary you might be watching, maybe it's some political episode happening in sub-Saharan Africa, maybe it's a survival narrative that's happening up in the Andes Mountains of South America, whatever it is, you find yourself being prompted subconsciously but intentionally by the documentarian. You find yourself asking, gosh, what would I do in that circumstance? How would I respond in that situation? What would my thinking, what would my feeling, what would my doing be if I was in that sort of context and construct? Well, keep that in mind. 
because the gospel accounts in our Bible are the greatest documentary ever written by, produced by, dare I say even financed, funded by, the greatest documentarian ever. That would be the Holy Spirit of God himself, the third member of the Godhead Trinity, inspiring human authors as well to give a documentary of the life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection of this man named Jesus who is also divine. And so we are invited in as we read these narratives, these four gospel accounts, to ask the question of the people that are being described. How would I respond? What would I say? What would I think? What would I feel? What would I do? And so with all of that, it's Palm Sunday. I'm going to invite you to open your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And we're going to begin reading in verse 11. Now, for the purists among you, this is going to, oh, how shall I say, vex you. Because we're going to jump around in all of our gospel accounts. Not just because I'm super ADD. That's only a small part of it. It's because all four of our gospel writers are contributors in different ways to the gospel documentary that is about Jesus. You've got Matthew, who was writing very specifically, very precisely, to declare that Jesus is the king of the Jews. That's his whole point. Jesus is the rightful heir of David. He is the promised Davidic king from 2 Samuel. It's Jesus. Surprise, it's not what we expected, not what we thought or anticipated, but it's Jesus. Whereas the Gospel of Mark, written from Rome by Mark to Romans, who's trying to answer the question, you want to see what greatness is? It's service. And so Mark's trying to tell his readership that Jesus is the suffering servant of the book of Isaiah. But now Luke is a Gentile. Luke is a Greek. The highest echelon of thought, of aesthetic arrival, is the human form. They, they thought that man was the ultimate climactic expression in all of creation. And so Luke is writing to say Jesus is the man. Not just man, he's the man. He is the ultimate, he is the utter. Not only that, he is Lord Sabaoth. He is the man that is the commander of the hosts of the armies of God. He's the man, and he's awesome. But the Gospel of John is written for yet a different perspective to say that Jesus is divine. He is deity. He is God himself. So he's the rightful king of the Jews. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah. He is the man. He is God. And so we're going to look somewhat sporadically at all of these gospel accounts in one way or another so that we get sort of this quadraphonic handling of this documentary. This morning, we're going to look at the life of one guy in particular. His name is Pontius Pilate. Pilate is his last name, not really his job description. He doesn't have an airplane, which is what I thought when I was a kid. No, Pontius Pilate. He's a Roman. He's a Gentile. He's secular. He's in Jerusalem. He is the governor of that province of Judea. Lord willing, on Friday for our tenebrae service, we'll look at the life of Barabbas. And then on Sunday morning, of course, we'll spend some concerted time and effort looking at the life of Jesus. So this documentary, A Tale of Three People. We're going to bounce around mostly between Matthew and the Gospel of John. So Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 11. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him. Now hold there for one second. Because that's going to set us up, actually, for our big idea. 
Matthew has slowed the pace way, way, way down in his telling, as does Mark, as does John, as does Luke. They've kind of sped through the early life of Jesus, but you get to this last week of his life, and it takes more than half of their book. So for Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, this last week of his life, you might paraphrase it as a long walk to an empty tomb. Now, that's the documentary. There is a long walk to an empty tomb. And so what Matthew and Mark and Luke and John are all doing is our big idea for the morning. It goes like this. Everyone must answer the question, what shall I do with Jesus? What shall I do with Jesus? And the first person we're going to look at who tries to wrestle with answering that question is this guy, the governor, Pontius Pilate. Verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Remember, this is Matthew. Matthew's point is that he is the king of the Jews. And so the governor, Pontius Pilate, says, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. Now, let me just, can we, that's vexing to me. I'm murking. Just answer the question, Jesus. You, you could have made this easier on everybody. He asked you a question, answer the question. Are you the king of the Jews? Oh, but this might surprise you. Jesus is creative. He's clever. He's sovereign. He's God. He's outmaneuvering the maneuverer. If Jesus says yes to that question, then he can and would be found guilty on the spot of treason and sedition because Caesar is king. And so he does not say yes because that would have been to fast track his own demise. That's not why Jesus came. He is sovereign. He is in control. But he also cannot say no because he is a king. And he's also sinless in thought, word, and deed. And so Jesus' answer is brilliant. Are you the king of the Jews? You've said so. He is sinless and righteous and holy in his response. So Matthew 27, verse 11, Jesus said, you have said so. Now, if you're the kind of person that makes notes in your Bible, awesome. If you're not the kind of person that makes notes in your Bible, become that person today. Because between verse 11 and 12, we have a gap. I know your Bible translation probably doesn't say that, but between Matthew 27, 11, and 12, we have a bit of a lengthy gap. Now, let me bring you up to speed. We've been talking about Holy Week. By the time we get to Matthew 27 here, we are already in Friday of the week, okay? Let me give you some quick historical background. We are in Friday of the week when we get to Matthew 27. Jesus has already had his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. We've got the events here on screen. He's already had his triumphal entry. He's come in from Jericho. And as he approaches Jerusalem, the people put down palm fronds on the street. And they say, Hoshiana, 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 God save us, God save us, God save us. Those same self people within a week's time will be clamoring for his crucifixion. Not only that, there are no palm trees in Jerusalem then or now. They brought the palm fronds from Jericho. This was a well-meditated, premeditated policy or program for them. They brought palm fronds from Jericho. They bring them. They lay them down. God save us. God save us. God uh, in Christ goes through all of his uh, busy week, this holy week. On Friday, they have Passover. They go out of the upper room. They sing songs, go out into the night together. They go down out of the old city of Jerusalem, down through the Kidron Valley, east up into the Mount of Olives. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas has betrayed them. Jesus gets arrested. Jesus then will go and spend not one, not two, but three 
religious trials. You see this here on our timeline. First, he stands before a man named Annas. He's sort of the high priest emeritus. He's an old guy. It's time for him to step down. But vexingly, he hasn't died yet. And so his son-in-law is now the high priest. That's Caiaphas. So Jesus is dragged before Annas. Then he's dragged before Caiaphas. Finally, they drag him before the Sanhedrin. That's the governing body, the Senate of Israel. Three religious trials. Jesus goes three for O. He's undefeated. He's declared innocent in all of them. And they're getting madder and madder. Every time they try to drag him to trial, he's declared innocent. Now, Jesus has already faced three trials. Peter has already denied him three times. So we're fast-tracking to get into this Friday. Jesus has three religious trials he has to endure. He will then face three civic trials, two with Pilate, one with Herod. Six trials, Jesus will go 6-0. and oh. He's undefeated. He will ultimately face a seventh trial. On the cross, he will be found innocent, but declared guilty. And if you don't know that about Jesus, I invite you to believe. Seven official forensic judicial declarations of his innocence, his purity, his righteousness, his holiness, and his goodness. And the final one, he is found innocent but declared guilty. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Seven and oh, during Holy Week, Jesus goes and all of his evaluations, all of his judicial proceedings. He is innocent. And so we've already had these three religious trials. Jesus has been arrested. He's brought before Pilate, and now we have an interlude. So keep your finger right there, Matthew 27. I need you to switch over to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28. There's going to be some overlap here. Don't be confused. These two guys, you, you lay these accounts over one another, and you get the whole picture. That's what that timeline on screen is about. So John chapter 18, beginning in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled. <laughs> Oh, isn't that sweet? Isn't that nice? Little rule followers. They've already conducted not one, not two, but three trials overnight. That's illegal. They've struck him on the face. That's illegal. They spat on him. That's illegal. They ripped out his beard. That's illegal. They mocked him as the priests and leaders of Israel. That's illegal. Now they don't want to go into Pilate's house because they don't want to get icky. They don't want to be defiled so that they can have the Passover. Isn't that the way our minds as humans work? Oh, I'll do that, but I won't do that. They've done this horribly egregious, illegal, and unrighteous thing to this man because he was their enemy, and yet they're still trying to maintain their own posture of righteousness. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Everyone must answer the question, what shall I do with Jesus? Everyone has to get drawn into this documentary. How would I respond in that situation? How would I think, act, feel in those circumstances? Verse 29. So Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? John 18, verse 30. They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. 
<laughs> if it wasn't so tragic and galling, it would be funny. Hey, 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 we wouldn't be waking you up if this guy wasn't an evildoer. Just take our word for it. Just trust us. He's bad news, man. He's really bad. Yeah, but what did he do? Oh, he's real bad. Okay, but what did he do? Oh, he's like super bad, man. You just need to kill him. Whoa, that escalated quickly, right? Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Oh, so it's no secret. They don't want him just removed, exported, deported. They want him dead. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He had told his disciples, not once, not twice, but three times, I'm going to be delivered up and the leaders of Israel will kill me. And so Jesus is in complete control of this entire process. Now, one more interlude. Don't get frustrated. Hang in there with me. Between verse 32 and verse 33 of John chapter 18, there's another little interlude. What happens in the text, we have to go to Luke 23 just in the interest of time. We're not going to go into it now. Luke adds some more mortar in between these narratives. So you get them all laid over together. Luke tells us that when this is happening, the Jews begin to threaten Pilate. They say, if you don't do what we're telling, you will no longer be a friend of Caesar. Well, that seems like not that big of a threat. Like, I'm going to take my marbles and go home. He's not going to be your friend anymore. No, it's an unofficial official title. To be a Roman officer or governor, you wanted the title friend of Caesar. That's kind of like saying you're on the cabinet. You are a trusted advisor. You're on the inner circle of influence and impact. Pilate had had that. When he first comes to Judea as the governor, he is, quote, unquote, a friend of Caesar's. And trying to show off his pomp in that circumstance, he decides to flex some muscle. He sets up a bunch of Roman deity statues in the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. And the Jews lose it. They can abide a whole lot. They cannot tolerate that. And so they muster and assemble. They come together and they say, hey, get these abomination defilements out of the temple now. And Pilate says, I'm the governor here. You're just my conquered people. I'm not budging. And they said, remove this stuff now or we're never leaving. He says, if you stay, I will kill you. And they said, bring it. Kill every last man, woman, and child. We're not leaving until they're gone. And Pilate says in Latin, and I quote, <laughs> and he backs down. They beat him. And Caesar is embarrassed by his cowardice. And he strips him of the title friend of Caesar. And so Pilate has always hated this region because he's had to back down because these stiff-necked people would not budge. And so he removes the statues. And so the Jewish people know this, and they keep dangling the carrot back out in front of him. So the Gospel of Luke tells us what happens in this situation is they tell Pilate, the Jewish leaders, you've got to do this or you won't be a friend of Caesar. And by the way, not only is he causing problems here, he's causing problems up in the north, in the Galilee. He's rabble-rousing in the Galilee. And Pilate goes, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Did you say Galilee? I'm pretty sure you just said Galilee. Could have sworn you said Galilee. Whew. All right, all right, all right. His rival was a guy named Herod. Not Herod the Great, different Herod. Perhaps you've heard of him. Herod technically was a governor of the northern region, the northern uh, province. Technically a governor. He called himself a king. But he's responsible for that area. But because it was the Passover, he's come to Jerusalem. And so Pilate goes, you know what? Tell you what, send Jesus to Herod. And the Jews all go, no, this is taking too long. We have a plan. We've got to get him to death before sunrise. 
We don't want the whole town knowing that we've charged the rabbi, the teacher, the prophet, the healer, the miracle worker, the sign maker. We've got to get him on the cross now. But Pilate says, uh-uh, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to make a decision about Jesus. And he procrastinates. You know anybody like that? I'm just not going to make a decision about Jesus. I'll just put it off and wait. You don't get to. Well, they send him to Herod, and Herod says, and I quote, Oh, goody, 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 I've been wanting to meet you. Do some things. Do some tricks. Do, do some, to some, some signs. Do some parlor. Come on. Do, dance, pony, dance. And the sovereign creator of the cosmos, who eternally exists, will not do any tricks for a man named Herod. And so Herod says, essentially, gosh, you're a weird little fella, but you are harmless. I find no evil in this man. And he sends him back to Pilate. Luke tells us over this, <laughs> Pilate and Herod used to be rivals and enemies, and they didn't like each other, but now they become friends over Jesus, how they decided to work together to deal with the Jesus problem. Now they're buddies. Now they have graham crackers and red punch, and yay, they actually came together over this mess. So that's the Luke 23 interlude. We pick back up. We're still in John's gospel, verse 33. This is the second time that Jesus is before Pilate, verse 33 of John 18. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Like, what gives? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Are you actually interested yourself? Do you really want to know who I am? Or are you just simply trying to do your job as a mock judge, some propped-up politician? Do you, do you actually want to know about me? Because I'll, I'll tell you, but I can tell that you actually don't. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? In other words, I could not possibly care less. I don't care. You just bother me. You're causing me problems. I just want a life of convenience and to be left alone. I don't want to have to think about Jesus. That ever been you? Everyone must answer the question, what shall I do with Jesus? Pilate's being forced to make a decision. And by the way, the God of the universe is working tirelessly, sleeplessly to lead all of us to make a decision to answer the question, what shall I do with Jesus? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Like, what? I, I, I can't figure this out. Why are you still here? Why are you bothering me? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus says, essentially, if I just raise this eyebrow right there, billions of trillions of angelic hosts come, and they make a parking lot out of the Milky Way. That's my kingdom, but that's not what I'm here for. If that's what I wanted, you would not be a problem. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. Isn't he clever? Isn't he great? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, that's not in the text, but you can hear, what is truth? He's not wanting to have an argument about postmodern philosophies. He's just saying, I'm done talking about this. This is not getting me anywhere. What is truth? 
After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. For those of you keeping score, Jesus is now 5-0. and He keeps getting declared innocent. By the way, you need a king and a savior and a lord like that who repeatedly, religiously and civically gets declared innocent. I find no guilt in him. That's a great statement. Verse 39, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Pilate's still trying to flex some muscle, be magnanimous among the people. We're Rome. We have a custom to show you that we're great, but also gracious. Every Passover, we'll release one of your prisoners, usually a political patsy, not somebody who's dangerous. They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas, the text says, was a robber. Well, no, he's an insurrectionist, a seditionist. He's a traitor. He's, he's, he's a bad, 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 hardened criminal. And so Pilate is taken back like, wait, hold on, what now? This guy's got no guilt in him at all. Everyone sees it. You want the murderer? Oh, I see what's going on here. Keep your finger there. In John chapter 19, we got to flip back over now to Matthew 27. At long last, back to Matthew 27, beginning in verse 12. So a little bit of an overlap here. Don't lose your way. Verse 12, but when he was accused by the chief priests and the others, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. Now, very quickly here, verse 15. Now, at the feast, that's Passover, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So that when they'd gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Messiah, Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Uh-huh. Barabbas is a bad guy, and they're calling Jesus a bad guy. Oh, you want a bad guy? You want a seditionist, a traitor, a murderer, a robber, a thief, a killer? Oh, I've got one of those in cold storage. Let's see what you really want put to death. Are you really acting as though you love me in Rome, or are you just doing your own political exploits? Because I've got one of the guys you're accusing. Hmm. Verse 19, besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, oh my gosh, it happened to him too, 2,000 years ago. He's trying to do his job, and his wife texts him. It can happen. There you are. You're in the middle of a thing. I'm kidding. She sends him a message. While he's sitting on the judgment seat trying to be all Roman and awesome, his wife sends him a handwritten note, and they tap him on the shoulder. He's like, what is it? And it's, you know, it's a text message, sort of. It's handwritten. And this is what she says. She sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. <laughs> Don't make a decision about Jesus. Whatever you do. Whatever. Is that good counsel? No. Does she want him to not pronounce judgment wrongly on him, that is, that is good advice. But she's saying, don't make any decisions about Jesus. Don't, don't. Bad counsel. What we get to do is to help people make the right decisions about Jesus. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus? There's his question. What shall I do with Jesus? Remember, this is a documentary. What are you going to do? 
What are you going to say? What shall you do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? Why? What evil has he done? There's a famous painting of this by a Hungarian man named Munkaski. It's life-size. All the people in this painting are actually about full human size. It hangs in the gallery in Budapest. And you can see that Jesus in this painting depicted, because unfortunately we don't have an actual documentary film footage of this event, we have people doing their best. You see that Pilate is fidgeting with his hands, trying to read a text message, but his phone's it's not, it's, it's Android. It doesn't work. It's, it's, too, it's, it's just bad. And Jesus is in the center, and Jesus is actually the judge. What shall I do with Jesus? And he said, why? Verse 23, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. The inhumanity of that request goes beyond my ability to discuss. Verse 24, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, I'm not being effective or successful in my program of procrastination about Jesus, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered. I don't usually say this kind of a thing, but I hate this verse. You'll understand why. Verse 25. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And it has been for 20 centuries. There. Right there. Matthew 27, verse 25, is the completion and the closure and the final failure of the Mosaic Covenant. It's over. Israel has broken it for the last time. That age closed in Matthew 27, verse 15. And it's tragic. Verse 26, Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus... Delivered him to be crucified. Having scourged Jesus. Flip back over to John chapter 19. Stick with me. Pilate has him scourged. A scourging is a scourging. A scourging is not a flogging. A flogging is where you take a whip and you whip a man. The Jews would do it. 40 lashes minus one. Because 40 was indecent. 40 was too many. 40 was just inhumane. But the Romans didn't have any sort of filter or limit. They had three different levels of flogging, the third of which was almost always fatal. It was called a, well, the flagellum. And we used a, a flagrum. It looks like this. The flagrum had it usually three to nine strips of leather. Embedded on it were, strip, were pieces of bone and metal and wood. He's not flogged. He's scourged. More often than not, it was fatal. They would lash a human to a vertical beam like this, tie their hands around the beam, and they had two professionals. This is what these guys did for a living. They were called lictors. And they would grab, each one of them had one of these flagrums, and they would lay a lick across his back, and that was painful enough. Your nerves just go volcanic at that moment, but it was the removal of all that material from your flayed skin that would just cause the most excruciating pain known to man. And then the next guy would do it. Whoosh. And pull it out. And then the next guy would do it. He's scourged. He's not flogged. <laughs> do you know how many Bible verses we have that quote his words? 
during this time? That would be none. This man, who was declared righteous already legally five times, innocent, who could have raised an eyebrow and called down the hosts of heaven, says nothing. Well, that's bad. Until they untie your hands and they turn you around back to the beam and they tie your hands behind the beam and then they repeat the process across your front. It's discouraging. Most did not survive it. Maybe you've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ. We could never show it in church. It's too offensive. It's too graphic. It's too uh, offensive violently. The sort of pinnacle scene of the movie is the scene in which Jesus is scourged. And the actor portraying Jesus, Jim Caviezel, they, they set him up with all this sort of prosthetic wood and plastic board on his back, and they would go full force. They would hit that prosthetic protective barrier with all they could, and they would go back and later in audio and fix the actual sound. And it was gruesome. It was really, really violent and really horrible to try to comprehend. And they just kept doing it as they rolled camera again and again and again, until once. One of those little strips, one time, looped over the board and caught him on the rib. One strip, one lick, one cord caught him one time, opened a 14-inch gash on his rib cage. I love the interview by Jim Caviezel. He says, it was at that exact instant in time that I broke character. You think? And it wasn't like he just screamed out and they go, ooh, that's really authentic. Roll, keep, keep the camera. No, no, no. He said, I used every foul word I could think of in every language I'd have ever imagined. It hurt so bad. In the making of that movie, he said he had a dislocated shoulder, a lung infection. He'd been struck by lightning. That's a tip-off. He had gotten all kinds of skin infections from all the makeup and the prosthetics he was having to wear. And he says this, it's one thing to act like Jesus. It's another thing to be Jesus. And they scourged him. Pilate's way of procrastination brings Jesus pain. Just want you to ruminate on that for some of you who are still procrastinating on Jesus. John chapter 19, then Pilate took Jesus, these are overlapping, and flogged him, says the English translation of John. Now, John uses two words to say it was the maximum flogging. That's a Roman expression to say that he was scourged. They're not contradictory accounts there. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. For this, we need a little bit more backstory. I won't turn there, but in Luke 23, it says they played the game of the king, is what this is. They put a staff in his hand. They would punch him in the face. They'd spit on him. They would mock him. They'd put a purple garment on his body. And just when it would begin to cling to all those fresh wounds, they would rip it off. And do it all over again. And not a word. Not a word. Not a mumbling word. Like a sheep led to the slaughter. Verse 4. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. We have another wonderful masterpiece painting from a guy named Antonio Cesare. It's called Eke Homo. This is, this is the man. You can see in this, again, we don't have the documentary film footage. We have these paintings. And you can see Pilate leaning over the rail imploring, please, please do not make me do this. You want him dead. We're killing him. 
We're scourging him. He's not cried out. He's not cursing. He's not said anything. A murderer, a seditionist, a traitor, a thief, we can't get him to cry out and we're scourging him. Please don't make me do this. But the path is set. Behold the man. This is the artist's way of saying, look at what we do. There's an expression that's in the 21st century, thanks to social media, that says, if you want to know about our species, read the comments. That's who we are. No. If you want to know what we are in our own species, behold the man. Echo homa in Latin. Behold the man. This is what the greatest empire in human history, Rome, can produce. There are still many of us that think, if we just had better government, more education, a superb economy, better programs, policies, and procedures, we could fix this. No! No. Behold the man. That's what we do at our best. Behold the man. Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. Please, please, do not force my hand. Do not make me do this. So Jesus comes out, verse 5, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Behold the man. Flip back over very quickly, Matthew 27. I know, you're getting whiplash. Hang with me. We've got to have these as an overlap. Matthew 27 and verse 27. Again, a little bit of an overlap here. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, twisting together a crown of thorns to reverse the curse of the ground. They put it on his head and put a reed in his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him. They took a reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. And they led him away to crucify him. Back to John 19, very quickly now, in verse 6. John 19, verse 6. When the chief priest and the officer saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. Why? For I find no guilt in him. He's done nothing wrong. He said nothing wrong. I can't think that he's ever thought anything wrong. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And the penny drops. Oh, wait a second. Pilate now realizes, you guys don't want him out of the way because of Rome. You're threatened. This is a spiritual issue. And all of the things begin to come true for Pilate. See, in Roman lore and mythology, the gods would descend and they would talk to you through dreams. And now he's beginning to wonder because they had some mythological tales that the gods would show up and if you did not honor the gods properly, they would wipe you out and your entire town. That's why Paul and and Barnabas almost get stoned in Acts chapter 13 and 14 because they thought they were gods. And so they try to like treat them like gods. And Paul says, we're not gods. And so they start throwing stones at them. Pilate's having the same experience. Do I have a God? Do I have a deity? Do I have divinity in my presence? My wife has been tortured all day long about this. Uh Uh-oh. Do I have deity? Has one of the gods come into my presence? That's what Pilate's beginning to wonder. The Jews answered, we have a custom that he must die because he's made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Are you watching the documentary? See, 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 See the scene. Jesus has been scourged. There's little left of him, humanly speaking, and Pilate is the one who's afraid. 
what shall I do with Jesus? What would you do in that situation? Would you continue to procrastinate? He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? Don't say Galilee. Don't say Nazareth. Don't say Bethlehem. Where are you really from? He's asking him if he's divine. But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus finally answers him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. You want to know where I'm from? It's your worst fear. I am divine. This is the way Jesus says it because he's speaking to Pilate and Pilatees. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. That is the leaders of Israel. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. He's trying to get out of it. He's trying to find some way to not have to make this decision. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. They keep dangling that threat. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic, Gabbatha. That's the picture we saw earlier on the judgment seat. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, so it's noon on Friday. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! First, it's behold the man. There's a bookend here. Behold the man. Look what we have done. Look what we have created and produced. Now, behold your king. This is what you deserve. Echo, Basileus. Behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And then this verse. John 19, 15, the chief priests, not just the rabble, not just the, the, the thugs from the, the forum, no, no. The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Do you remember the book of Judges? There was no king in Israel and everyone did as they saw fit, as they pleased. This is the closing, the completion, the failure and the fracture of the Mosaic covenant. So he delivered him over to be crucified. This documentary of Pilate's life presents us with that issue. Everyone must answer the question, what shall I do with Jesus? You, like Pilate, can try to procrastinate, but know that the hound of heaven, as C.S. Lewis says, is pursuing you actively, and he is good. And he is the enemy of your old self, and he will stop at nothing to facilitate you answering that question. So let me give you just three very quick principles we can take away from this narrative, from this documentary of the life of Pontius Pilate. First goes like this. Believing the gospel means transferring your trust. Believing the gospel, the good news about what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another means transferring your trust. You come into this world, you trust in your own abilities. I can do this, I can fix this. I can fix this. We can fix this. I trust in my government, I trust in my country, I trust in my nation, I trust in my people group, my family, my household, my wealth, my capacity to earn. I trust in all these things. But believing the gospel says, nope. Behold the man. Behold your king, who was found innocent but declared guilty. Transferring all of your weight, all of your worth, all of your identity, all of your living, all of your looking, all of your loving in the world as if the gospel is true. 
It actually changes how we exist in the world. We transfer our trust to, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but if things go down, I still have to be able to, no, 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 no. Believe in the gospel, you transfer it, I am all in on the gospel. Well, I'm not so sure that he really is good. Behold the man. Behold your king. You can trust him. Second point, and I know that this is a repeat because it's just in the Bible from the table of contents all the way through to the maps. It's a recurring refrain. It goes like this. Spiritual problems require divine solutions. Spiritual problems require divine solutions. Behold the man. Look at the mockery that we make when we try to marshal our resources our collective creativities. We can fix this. We can fix this. No. As my dad rightly said, when you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. But we as a species like to dig holes and then dig them deeper and then celebrate how deep the hole is and then dig them deeper and then kvetch and complain about how deep the hole is. No. The human problem is a spiritual problem and it requires a divine solution. Behold the man. Now when I say behold, I don't just mean in some... Ethereal, I mean, no, 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 look at him. That's why I spent the time talking about the flagrum. Look at him. Behold the man. That is the divine solution. Not a program, not a policy, not a procedure, not even a place. It's a person. Behold your king. He has offered the solution in abundance, freely. It's the best possible news. Third, very practically now. Past misdeeds do not lock us into bad choices now. This is the documentary of Pilate. What would you do? How would you think? How would you feel? Pilate made a bad choice, and he felt as though he was locked into a series of bad choices. Now, here's the conundrum. Scripture says that the Son of Man must be delivered up and raised up so that all can see. Jesus was going to go to a cross. Did Pilate have to be complicit in that entire process? Not necessarily but he felt locked in. But the good news is that we are never going to find ourselves in a situation in where all of our choices are sin. He will always provide a way of escape. That's 1 Corinthians 10. So do the next wise thing. It might feel like dying. It's okay. You're not alone. You are loved. Do the next wise thing. Stop making things worse by making bad choice after bad choice. Everyone must answer the question, what shall I do with Jesus? And so I just want to ask, if you're here this morning and you've yet to answer that question, what shall you do with Jesus? I want to give you the opportunity to answer, to believe, to be adequately persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he was declared righteous because he was and evermore is. And yet... He atoned for all of our sin. It may not make complete sense. You might not even like it. You might not even understand all of it, but you are adequately persuaded. I invite you to believe. To talk about that with some of us, ministry staff, elders, leaders, other ministry leaders, whomever it might be, a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, family member, whatever. Do not procrastinate that decision. For the rest of us, behold the man. Behold your king. I was reading just this week. It's amazing, the symmetry of Scripture. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, who's apparently very discouraged. And Paul, it's just so great. Paul writes to Timothy, Timothy, remember your good confession. 
What's he talking about? Remember your good confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He takes away the sin of the world and he gives me his righteousness. Remember that. And then Paul goes on to say, because it's the confession that Jesus Christ made before Pilate. When we behold the man and we behold the king, we identify, we enter in, we associate, we affiliate the actual life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's why we have believers' baptism by immersion. Paul says, remember your confession, Timothy. It's the confession of Jesus before Pilate, that he's not of this world, that he lived righteously and he died. He atoned for our sin, but he gives us his righteousness. So if you've been a believer a long time, I want to remind you and encourage you and exhort you to that reality. If you've never been baptized, I want to invite you to spontaneously come on down. We will significantly moisturize it and hold you till you bubble. It's all right. We've got towels. For the rest of you, we're about to pray, and then we're going to go downstairs, and we're going to have believers' baptism together. And I want the veracity of this symbolic thing that we do to echo forth the gospel from our coffee garden. I invite you to be persuaded. I invite you again and again and again this Holy Week to behold the man. Behold your king. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are, for what you've done in Christ, to redeem us to yourself and to one another. I do pray, Father, if there's anyone here that does not know you, that is not yet persuaded, that you would persuade them, that they would believe that you would move by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son. Father, if there's someone here this morning that's on the fence about getting baptized, would you stir their hearts to identify publicly with your covenant community to demonstrate their being raised to walk in newness of life? For the rest of us, Father, would you encourage us this Easter week, this holy week, of what you've done in Christ to redeem us. I pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.